0: Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the Insurgents. Here's
1: Frank. Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast. Once again, I have Mike Heiser. We're going to continue our conversation on the warfare in the heavenlies against the kingdom of God. Here's what scripture says about demons concerning what they do they're also called evil spirits. They oppress people, Matthew 4 24, and a whole list of other passages. They possess people, Matthew 8 28, and a whole list of other passages. They make people mute, Matthew 9, 33, where they can't speak. They make people unclean, Luke 4, 33. They throw the possessed to the ground. They have the power to do that, Luke 4, 35. They make people paranoid, Mm -hmm. John 7, 20. They make people insane, John 10, 20. They give false teachings, obviously through individuals, 1 Timothy 4, 1. They perform signs. Obviously, for people, Revelation sixteen four, they deceive people, First Timothy four one, and they cause people, or they can cause people, to physically overpower others, Acts nineteen verse sixteen. And so, demons seek to enslave, possess, deceive, and harass and my, humans.
2: My colorful translation is they turn people into into flesh, you know, puppets. You know, and that's different. See that that's those are all individual level kind of things. Yes. They're not, like, geopolitical.
1: Yes, that's principal. Well, that's principalities. That's later. Yeah, yeah like, we'll get to that. Your
2: listeners you know, should should know that there's a distinction to be there's made already.
1: And there's a distinction between, we have, again, for review, not to scare anybody. <laughs> uh, I, I can't see some people uh, under the bed with a flashlight <laughs> listening to their iPhone here when we talk about this. But we have Satan over here. He's an individual celestial being who had fallen, and, and now he's kind of a leader. He actually is the leader of the dark realm. We have demons, which we're going to talk about now, and then we have principalities and powers, which we'll talk about a little later. Now, let's get into the origin of demons, Mike. I was taught, you were probably taught, that demons are the fallen angels that are mentioned in Revelation as stars who fell from heaven. And you've done great work on this, debunking that, and you've done excellent work in going through the historical evidence held by the early church fathers also yeah, affirmed in yeah. second temple judaic literature and so forth on where demons came from so i'm going to default to you and have you share the story
2: yeah and we should say everything that, that you're going to hear here on this point is that the data points are in the old testament as well it's just that the dots aren't connected they they get connected later and I'll, I'll i'll come back to that thought but all of your ancient traditions jewish traditions in the intertestamental period and the first you know couple centuries of the early church they're all on the same page here and that is demons are the disembodied spirits of dead nephilim or dead rephaim these are the giant these are terms for the giant clans of the old testament and that sounds really bizarre because if you're the average Christian, you have never heard that before. If you were the average person living in the first century, you'd be yawning now because it's like, well, we talk about this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we just, again, this is, this is one of those points of ancient theological thinking that we have completely lost in our tradition. You're right. You know, I, If the, the, the point about the origin of demons was ever taught in any mean or any any way, you're right. It's always, you know, well, there was a third of the angels that rebelled, you know, in, in heaven with Satan. The problem is you can't find that anywhere in the Old Testament. There isn't a single passage that, that supports that. And you also can't find it in the New Testament. The, the, the only place you get the, language, the the word third, the numeral third or three, in association with a term for a demonic spirit or a one of the powers of supernatural darkness, that only occurs in Revelation 12, which, by the way, is the last book of the Old, of the New Testament. So, you know, it's nowhere near where you'd need it to be to, to make this theological right. point. Right. And if you actually look at Revelation 12, the the war in heaven being described there, where you get a, a third of the stars, uh, and there are even scholars who wonder if, you know, in that passage, if you can really connect... Uh, these two demons But we'll, we'll assume that For the sake of discussion But if you actually look at What the description there is The war in heaven breaks out In that chapter Because of the birth of the Messiah The birth of the child The Christ child It's, it's very plain All you gotta do is Read through the passage There's no reference To Genesis events There's no reference To Adam and Eve Or you know Like a, a garden rebellion It Basically the, this is a This is a really good example This is sort of my test case example for how Christian tradition rises to the level of doctrine in the church it's it's this topic because this is not taught anywhere in scripture but it is a, a firmly entrenched yes. church tradition that we sort of talk about as though it were doctrine and we kind of assume it is doctrine right you know but it, it's if, if our doctrine if we're supposed to get our doctrine from the biblical text you know what a what a novel thought that is, mm-hmm. uh, then we can't call this a doctrine, you know, yeah. you call it what it is, it's church tradition. So to, to backtrack, I mean, what, what you have in the Old Testament, and again, I know it sounds weird, demons are disembodied spirits of the dead, you know, giant clan guys, you know, that, that, that's just strange stuff, and it is, but if you go back in the Old Testament and you look at passages, I would recommend this just to, if you're doing Bible study. Look up, you know, terms like Sheol or other terms for the underworld, you know, the abyss and, and whatnot. Eretz in Hebrew is occasionally used for the underworld. but Sheol or Sheol is mm. the big one. You will find that Rephaim, again, one of the terms in the Old Testament for giant clans, are, are residents of the underworld. Mm. You will find, you know, two or three passages like that. And it's really interesting, outside the, the Hebrew Bible, like in the literature of Canaan, specifically Ugaritic literature, Ugarit was a city-state right you know, up in north Syria. Rephaim, you know, are, even there, are, are, are disembodied, but they are, they are typically the, the disembodied spirits of ancient kings. You never get them classified as giants. The only place you do is the Old Testament. Mm. And and that's important because it tells you that the Old Testament writers were associating that term with both giants and residents of the underworld. And you say, well, how does how does that work? You know? Well, you go to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 32. You know, these are the kings of old, again, and the terminology is elsewhere associated with the giant clans, who have died and are now members of you know, of the abyss. They are they are residents, denizens of, of the underworld. And and they are they are threatening. You could read Isaiah fourteen. Again, I know the passage isn't about Satan, but it's about a supernatural rebel, and that's the backdrop for Genesis three and right. the original rebellion. But they are they welcome him, you know, that that sort of thing. In other words, there's a camaraderie there. So the I mean these are not good guys. Um, they they get this terminology and what happened as as time went on in the in the Second Temple period, you had people looking at these passages. Again, all the dots are there, and they they drew the what what seems to be an obvious conclusion that, well, those spirits from hell, as it were, are these disembodied guys. You know, the disembodied spirits of these Rephaim, these old, you know, warriors and warrior kings of renown. If you go to Ezekiel 32, you have several of the words in that passage that go back to Genesis 6.
1: Yeah, there it is. You have Genesis
2: Giborim, 6. you have Nephilim. Yep. Okay, you, you, the, this stuff is in these passages. And so the intertestamental period, they're just connecting the dots. And this becomes the you know, Jewish theology based on the Hebrew Bible of where demons come from. And, and they, they also talk about this is why they seek embodiment. You know, they, yep. they, they, they seek re-embodiment to yep. do certain things on the earth. Intertestamental literature talks about, you know, them being under judgment and so on and so forth, but but being allowed to harass individuals, you know, on the surface, as it were. They, they can come and go. There are limitations to their abilities and their reach, you know, yeah. so to speak. But this is what they do. They, they harass people. They harm them, uh, you know. It becomes a verb by the time the New Testament rolls around. They yeah. demonize
1: people. They demonize.
0: Possess. You know, they possess.
2: They, they do the things that the New Testament just says yep. that they do. Yep. So it's, it's actually a consistent thought trajectory from Hebrew Bible to New Testament. It's just that you know we don't get the dots connected in the Hebrew Bible, even though the dots are there. We do get them connected later in Second Temple Jewish literature and the New Testament. And, and so this is what, what Jesus is dealing with. These are the ones that Jesus is dealing with uh, when you get into, you know, the, the gospel accounts. Uh, I'll give you one, one term, one popular Second Temple Jewish term for these guys, and this you find in the Dead Sea Scrolls a lot, are bastards, mm. bastard spirits. Interesting. And that's exactly what they are. Again, if you take Genesis 6 as the sons of God and the human men, you have supernatural beings And out of whatever happens there, either a cohabitation or some sort of supernatural act otherwise that gets characterized as cohabitation. I mean, both of those views are on the table for me. But we'll go with the cohabitation one since that's the one that that gets worked the most in Second Temple literature. But if if you take the sons of God there as supernatural beings and they produce offspring that are part supernatural and part human and they're also giants and then they die... And, they, you know, this, the spirit part of them lives on. The
1: flood kills them. Right.
2: Well, and well, there's there some that remain afterwards because yeah, you have the, the wars with Joshua. Yep. And interestingly enough, it's Moses, Joshua, and David who finally kill off, exterminate these lines. Mm. And all three of those are prototypes for the Messiah. What yes. a coincidence. That's right. Yeah. You know, again, none of these things are coincidental. Uh, if you believe in this worldview that you've got, you've got three rebellions. Like I talk about, you know, in, in right. some of the books I've written, you've got the original rebel in Genesis three. You know, the Satan character. You've got sons of God who transgress the boundary between heaven and earth, and they produce these offspring. They have an immediate problem because the offspring are trying to exterminate the physical people of God in the Old Testament, the yeah. Israelites. Uh, they get eliminated, but they're also blamed. Uh, this is Genesis six five. They're also blamed for depravity, for the acceleration of human self-destruction yeah. through yeah. depravity. That isn't taken away by the time of David. But, but you, so you have to deal with that. And then the third rebellion is what happens at Babel, with the fragmentation of the nations, the divorcing of the nations assigned to the lesser sons of God, who become rebels themselves. Right. So chaos among their populations... If you believe that if that's your supernatural worldview, three rebellions,
1: and that third one, that's where we get the principalities. and Yeah, that's and powers where we get from. the
2: principalities and powers. That's where Daniel gets the, the princes, yep. supernatural princes over the nations. You know, D- Daniel's idea comes from somewhere. Comes from Deuteronomy yep. thirty two eight, but if this is your worldview, you expect the Messiah to fix all three problems. Yes, well, you, you expect him to reverse all three rebellions, not yep. just Genesis three, that's right, not just the fall and 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 Jesus does this i mean he, when he announces the kingdom of god he starts confronting the demonic powers and you know basically trashing them and then he he assigns that authority to those who are in his kingdom mm-hmm. his his own children his own family you know and that that becomes connected to you know part of part of what we see in the book of acts and and you could argue from mark even part of the great commission uh, again and it's the point is not that every believer is supposed to be an exorcist the right. point is that People who are in the family of God have authority over That's these right. these beings. Absolutely. You know and that becomes, you know, it, it, you know, spiritual warfare varies. You know that you're going to you're going you might have a situation like this and you're supposed to know
0: right. because
2: you know scripture that you, you know, this entity has no authority over you. The reverse is true. You have authority over it right. in the name of Christ. And I want to
1: break in a little bit later because I want to drill down a little bit further on Genesis 6, but I want to tell a story Of When I met my first demon, (laughs) literally, and what happened is a remarkable story that impacted me and left an imprint that still exists. But to simplify Genesis 6 for listeners, and I'm going to put it in simplistic terms, you have angelic beings who are with God, they're looking at the daughters of men, meaning women on the earth, human women, they're lusting after them. And then, in some way that we don't understand, they come down and they cohabitate with them. They have sex with them. And, and, and let, let's break in here because <laughs> because the obvious question. Well, I is, just heard a bunch of iPhones go off, Mike, right. when I said that. Well, the obvious
2: question is, well, how does that work? <laughs> well, and, and the answer is,
1: I don't know. I don't know. I now, don't and, know. And,
2: but I, now I have a question for you: How does the incarnation work? You know, how, how does the Trinity work? How does the concept of salvation work? Yeah, that a guy hanging on a cross who's a bloody mess. Now, all of a sudden, we have peace with God, like, like that has some cosmic impact. My, my point is that a lot of other stuff that we believe does okay. not conform to an enlightenment a post-enlightenment modern exactly. materialistic technological view of reality. Sure. Everything we believe yeah. cannot be put under a microscope. It does yeah. not conform to the tools of science. And And what I'm rattles sorry. people's cages, and I think they need to be rattled here, is that we have assumed for a couple millennia now that... I can keep these supernatural factoids, okay the Incarnation. I, I can keep those beliefs, but I, I can dispense with these other ones and I want to dispense with these other ones because I want to be respectable or I, I want to be viewed as, as, as rational or, or you know, whatever. you know you, you think that you know your, your, your neighbor will think more highly of you if you believe the, the thin set of supernatural things as opposed to the full set. And and my question is on what basis? Yeah. Everything you believe, or that, that you profess as as a as a you know a follower of Jesus, the identity of Jesus himself, everything that you believe is supernatural. It that's it right. does not conform to a materialistic scientific worldview.
1: And it often doesn't explain the hows. Right. You know, it'll give you the what and maybe sometimes the why, but yeah. not the how.
2: Right. And and you know what? That that's in God's job description. Is God capable of creating supernatural beings that are able to do things that humans can't do? Well, of, of course. I mean, all these things extend from, ultimately, from theism. You know, what has greater explanatory power? There's a God versus there isn't a God. Once you accept the reality of, of God, then the next step is, well, can that God actually do anything? <laughs> and, and, you know, <laughs> well, Of course. But so, so on what basis do you, do you take away God's ability to make supernatural beings who can do things that humans can't? Yeah. There, there's no rational basis for denying God that. And so the person who's really irrational here is the one who doesn't believe in what Genesis 6 actually says. But we have, we have had two millennia now of denying this because of church tradition. Everybody in, in Judaism, everybody in the early church, took this view that I just articulated of Genesis six, including Peter and Jude, by the way. Yes, they um, mention it in their books. Right. Everything you know that was the worldview until you get to a guy named you know Julius Africanus who came who was a little bit before uh, Augustine or Augustine, and Augustine was the one who rejected this mm. I, this view. And because of his stature in the early church, basically the early church, and then the, you know all all the way up to this time, jettisoned what used to be mainline theology in Judaism and, and the first few centuries of the church. You know, Augustine had a huge influence here, but there were people who 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 didn't go along with it. Irenaeus yep. didn't buy it. He he was still in the in the old camp. Yep. Tertullian was still in the old camp. Uh, but but eventually, it just died out. Uh, because Augustine was so monumentally influential. And so now you go into the average church and they either don't have an answer for Genesis 6 or they take what's called the Sethite view. Sons of God are the sons of Seth. The daughters of of men are the sons of Cain, which the text never says. But they've created a view uh, on that to make the supernatural weird stuff go away. And hey, the incarnation's weird. The hypostatic union. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. That's weird. I can't explain that either. So I think we need to come to grips with, with the fact that we really can't explain any of the supernatural stuff in Scripture. And, and when it comes to doctrine, it's all, it all goes back to that. Sure. So we, you know let, let's own that and let God be God and, and say we just don't know. And you know that's God's job description, not mine. But it is a point of biblical authority, and you know, let, let's just go from that point on.
1: The attestation for the origin of demons found in Genesis six is so powerful because you don't just get it from the Second Temple Jewish literature, particularly the Book of First Enoch, but you also have it in Assyrian literature. Yeah, and that and that's, that's really
2: important because Genesis six one through four, and let, let's let's be consistent and add verse five here. That has a context that the writers assumed their readers would know, but we don't know. And that context is, is Mesopotamia. There There's a story, it's it's the story of the Apkallu. Uh, it's A-P-K-A-L-L-U. It's found mostly in the era epic. But there's a story of the Apkallu, which were before the flood, were divine beings. They rebel against a decision of the higher gods to destroy humanity with a the flood. Uh, they don't want humanity destroyed, so to preserve human civilization, in other words, to, to to instill their knowledge in humans so that humans can start over again, they decide to cohabit with human women. Uh, they do so in rebellion against their higher authority, their higher authority in that story, which was Marduk. And, you know, the result of it is after the flood, you have Apkalu written about in Mesopotamian sources that are part divine, part human. And they're also giants. Gilgamesh is the most go. famous example. There you go. Gilgamesh shows up by name in the Book of the Giants so among the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, all, all of this material is there. You actually have evidence there that the Dead Sea Scrolls actually preserved the Mesopotamian context for Genesis 6, 1 through 5, which is, which is really amazing, but maybe not so amazing because they live you know, closer to that period uh, than, than we obviously do, you know, 2,500 years removed. But Genesis 6, 1 through 5 had a Mesopotamian context, and it's in your Bible so that Israelites know that what happened right before the Flood in terms of the supernatural world transgressing into the human world, the, the Babylonians thought this was great. The Apkalu are heroes to them because the Abkallus, you know preserve divine knowledge that becomes the basis for Mesopotamian civilization after Flood and explains to the Babylonians why Babylon is so great. You know, why, why Babylon is the top dog, why we have the greatest civilization on earth. We get it from the gods. Mm. The gods had us in mind, you know, to save, you know, what we are, you know, from the flood. And, and the biblical writers are, oh, not, not really, you know, it, it's really not great. It's a transgression of heaven and earth because what it produces was initially aimed at exterminating us.
0: <laughs> that,
2: that would be bad. And, and ultimately, it led to human depravity because part of what the watchers, that's Enoch's term, for the sons of god but part of what these apkallu the angels you know the mm-hmm. sons of god the, the watchers part of what they teach humanity after the flood and you actually get a list you get a list of technologies in the mesopotamian yeah. literature and and it and it corresponds to what you read in second temple texts like Enoch and the Dead Sea Scrolls things like arts of warfare you know drugs sorcery idolatry mm-hmm. a knowledge of astrology you know all these mm-hmm. these different things and and the biblical writers are saying and and again the, the ancient jewish writers that followed you know them they're looking back on the old testament they say look this corrupted humanity this yeah. turned our hearts away from the true god to to these things and helped us destroy ourselves more effectively and turned humanity into idolaters yeah you know so so the biblical the, the, these five verses in genesis 6 are designed to communicate to believers, you know, believing Israelites, that what happened at the flood was not a good thing. Don't listen to the Babylonians. Yep. Okay, right. they are not the chosen people. We are. You know, this was not a good thing. Yes, it favored them because look who did it. You know, you, you had beings who are in rebellion against the created order, and, and that's how Babylon gets elevated. Yep. But on our side, we're the people of God, and we should have no part in this. Uh, so that's why, that's why
1: those verses are yeah. there. Well, it, it, the attestation is, is very powerful um, from various different sources, and the fact that this was the view that the Christians held up until, say, the 4th century. And by the way, just to insert this, uh, Augustine, uh, I believe Augustine wrote some wonderful things, but he also did a lot of damage, <laughs> not just in this area but in many others. And there's a book entitled Regrace. By Frank Viola, that tells you the shocking beliefs of Saint Augustine. So, if you want to look at some of that, I, it'll it'll chill your blood. Some of it, and if you want to drill
2: down on one particular thing with Augustine, I'm I'm going to recommend this book, but with a caveat. The book is called When Souls Had Wings, mm. and it, it's a it's a the, it's a book on the intellectual history of the idea of the preexistence of the soul, mm. and it's written by a Mormon scholar it's a, it's a scholarly book academic so you know he he goes all the way from antiquity to modern times and so he he you know he he might steer it in modern times toward you know places where he wants it to go but he has a he has a really i think it's two chapters on the early church this and specifically augustine hmm. and he shows with lots of primary sources again this is an academic book it's a scholarly book but he shows how you know, Augustine actually believed in pre-existence before he didn't.
0: <laughs>
2: but, and, and it's useful because it shows sort of like in real time how points of Augustine's theology became what they became in response to things that he either didn't like. In other words, it's, it's sort of
0: like theology by what
2: I don't believe as opposed yep. to what's in the, in the text. Yeah. So he's, he's a product of the forces of, of his own historical theological times and also kind of what he could get away with or, or what was palatable mm. within the structure, the bigger structure of the early church as it was emerging. So Augustine was human. Yep. Okay, he was human. He was a brilliant guy. Brilliant, yep. But part of where he lands on certain things is in response to other people and other forces of the day and right. and again that that's not it's not a sin it's just a human thing so he, he's human it's good to remember that again well, in like view right in view of his stature uh this is not a new act of inspiration when you know when augustine speaks he's, he's this is, he's not like in the line of the prophets or something yeah but honest. we but we, we tend to adopt the views of these guys,
1: well, especially Augustine, they, don't, because, they don't conform to exegesis. Well, yeah, and, and especially Augustine because he, his work is found in the curriculum of both Catholic and Protestant seminaries, mm-hmm. him and Aquinas. But to go back to Genesis 6, just to give a rough sketch of this, and I want to bring up a couple of points, Mike, about it. Again, to simplify, the angelic beings looking and lusting after the women of that day, they come down... There's sexual relations, there's offspring that are now half angelic, half human. They become the giants, the Nephilim. The flood wipes many or most of them out. Mm -hmm. But now, because they're angelic, right, they can't die. Their spirits go on. Their spirits go on. Now they're disembodied, and this makes perfect sense, that view, when you look at the gospel literature, because these demons want to inhabit people. They want to possess people. Why? Because they're without a body. Dumb. Some
2: some things you either just need a body for, or you just like to hurt people.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Because these are fallen beings; they weren't originally, of course. But that's how. And you have the passage in Second Peter, which is repeated in a slightly different form in Jude. And they talk about the angels who had fallen and left their first estate. What other
2: candidate is there? Exactly. Who are they? Oh, that's the third of the angels that (laughs) rebelled. Oh, in other words, that rebellion that isn't in the Old Testament. (laughs) No, the only place you get a group of angels, group of celestial beings rebelling, is Genesis 6. Genesis 6. Now, someone
1: listening, Mike... And praying for us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they've just unsubscribed to the podcast, (laughs) but now they're wondering, well, what about when... Jesus talked about the angels that we, we who go into the future kingdom of God, that manifestation of it, after we die, will be like the angels who do not marry,
2: mm-hmm.
1: nor are given in marriage. Does that not imply that angelic beings cannot have sexual relations with women?
2: Yeah, the, I mean, the, the passage you're referring to, Jesus talks about the angels in heaven, okay? On the spiritual plane, you don't need a body. You don't need to do embodied things, when those beings come to earth, which, by the way, is where the, the kingdom ultimately lands, okay, in the new earth, but when, when on earth, they assume flesh. I mean, this is, this is constantly the way we see angels described in the Old Testament. They are embodied, they look like people, they're indiscernible from people, and they do people things like eat, Genesis you know, 18 That's right. and 19, That's right. Yahweh himself is one of the three quote unquote men yeah who have a meal with abraham Now they don't need the meal they're not going to like get you know go yeah. die if they don't eat but they're embodied they can do these things they they have assumed flesh they're corporeal you have the same thing jacob wrestles with the angel of the lord yeah. Okay, that was an embodied conflict, all right? It has to be. If it was a you know, spirit, that's like right. nailing butter to a wall. Right. The, in, in Sodom, the two angels, you know, the, the two of the three that had the meal with Abraham, they go to Sodom, you know, to, to uh, rescue Lot, get him out of there. They have to physically pull him into his house. That's an embodied experience. You know, the, even, even in the New Testament, you get this. You have an angel show up in prison with uh, with Peter, and he hits him. Like you know, get up! We got to get out of here. You know When on earth, celestial beings can and often do take, you know, physical that's corporeal form and flesh. Flesh does what flesh can do.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. You
2: know, so so the the passage in the Gospels has really, honestly, it really has nothing to do with this, because the the way that a lot of the church interprets it, it would be denying the physicality of these beings that you see elsewhere in the Old Testament. Yeah, It's just that they'll, oh, well, I accept those. I just don't like this one in Genesis 6. And there you go again. You are selectively...
1: Yeah, cherry-picking.
2: Right, you are cherry-picking the text for the things that that, that favor whatever you want to think and, and those that don't. Uh, again, what any all the stuff that we're saying here, none of this was news, Yep. To the ancient Jewish community and the and the you know first few centuries of the early church. Again, if those guys were here in the room with you, they'd, they'd be asleep. I mean, it would help because we're, we're <laughs> sitting in a hotel room. We got beds. We have them.
1: fans yeah. and friends. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it, it's like this is this is old news. Yeah, it's nothing new. But it it's it's jolting, and it's potentially offensive to a lot of Christians now because we are moderns. We, sure. Our first impulse is to, is to ask the, well, how does that work question? Because of science, because of technology, yeah. and, and all these sorts of things. And again, we have to come to grips with the fact that none of the things we believe about God and Jesus conform Absolutely. to a scientific materialistic worldview. Yeah. They just don't. So, so let's get a firm grasp on that obvious point and then you know, sort of deal with the, the trepidation in our hearts and realized, well, you know what? I got over that trepidation in my heart a long time ago when it came to, to affirming the belief in God. And again, that's, this is where it all goes back to. Sure. All the quote-unquote bizarre stuff extends from the reality of God. If God is real, he can make beings who have certain abilities or who have certain properties, who can come to earth in embodied form and do earthly things. They can assume flesh and do what flesh does. There is no passage in Scripture that says that celestial beings cannot assume flesh on their own. You know, we, we tend to, to believe that God, like, gives them a suit for the day. You know, well, you want to go to Earth? You know, well, return the tuxedo when you get back. You know, like, that they can't do this. There's no verse in Scripture that says a celestial being does not have the power to assume flesh. I mean, we have creative power as well. They have creative. They're not God. We're not God, but we have this property, this ability to be creative and, and use yeah. the things in our environment. Right. And, and they're they are a far more advanced intelligence. You know, they they they're above us in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Again, we don't have a scriptural reason to deny them this ability. We, on the contrary, we actually see them doing these things, and we don't get verses that say that God gave them the suit mm-hmm. and told them to check it in when they get back. Yeah. Again we assu- we make all sorts of assumptions about our angelology and our demonology and frankly other doctrines as well you know yeah. we, we make a certain we have a certain set of operating assumptions that we've inherited from either the way we're taught as christians or, or or some church tradition and again these things aren't sinister and evil it's just the way it is we have to realize that that we we all of us when we when we become believers we wind up in some stream of tradition somewhere and and we inherit things from that, and and again, that's not a, a terrible, awful thing, but we have to awaken to the fact that you know, you know, our the, the the ultimate guide for what I believe should actually be the text of Scripture. You know, that thing we say is inspired, yeah, the Bible, that thing.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, wouldn't it be
2: a good idea to be able to, to to trace what we believe back to that, and if it doesn't comment on that, to not fill in the gaps?
1: Well, tradition is a powerful thing, and because of it, whatever camp you've grown up in or a part of, many Christians are living in cognitive dissonance when it comes to a lot of these things. And one of the things that Mike and I both do, as far as the light that we have, of course, we're still learning and growing ourselves. Yeah, every day. And shedding things and and re-examining things. But is to share our discoveries to encourage God's people to get down to the roots of what's reality and what's not.
2: I tell people, look, tradition is not a bad, sinister thing. Mm-hmm. It is a defined, limited thing. Right. It is a lesser thing than, than the text of Scripture. So at the end of the day, I, I'm not anti-Creed. I'm not anti-tradition. I'm, I'm more like apathetic to that, kind of in a, hopefully in a good sense, that I, I care about Scripture more, and I will make my traditions subservient to Scripture. I ultimately care about one thing. What can the biblical text sustain? There are ambiguities in the Bible. There are questions that, that it does not fully answer Absolutely. and address. Many, and, and by the way, God is well aware of that. Yep. If, if God wanted many, many. those peripheral things fully answered, he could have brought somebody else along to write another book of the, of the New Testament and comment on that <laughs> and clarify it. So that tells you that maybe when it comes to Christian unity, you know, we can have unity without conformity. You know, it, it, the issue isn't conformity, it's unity. Maybe we ought to focus on the things that have greater clarity and, and really a high, high degree of clarity and, and unite around those things and then be content to, to noodle the other things because it's fun. God expects us to be thinkers. You know, he, he likes when we in, investigate scripture, we're told to do that. It, it's just that. God knows that again providentially he hasn't given us as great a clarity on you know eschatology or, or you know whatever it is but we have we have a great degree of clarity on, on other things so we let, let's press the text as far as we can take it and when we hit a wall just say, hey I hit a wall I don't know it could be this or that depending on how I take this or the, this or that verb or this or that thing and just be content with that but keep you know keep at it keep thinking yeah. about it because. I have I have learned to be content with the questions that I can't answer. Yes, me too. I I just care about what can the For text sustain. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it. It it could be this or it could be that. You know, it could be dichotomy or try. You know, all these things that we you know we, we kind of in in theology that that people argue about and, and, and you know engage. It, it's okay. It's a fine exercise, but. Let's not take those things and elevate them to, like, the deity of Christ well, or the, the gospel or something that, that's like that. has been
1: a major problem. It's why I wrote the book Regrace, because Christians tend to cut the dividing line where they will cut off fellow Christians right. over peripheral, right. the, non-essential the king, doctrine. The
2: kingdom of God is my own subculture. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, exactly. That's the course of church history for many, many years.
2: Instead of your your doctrine of the kingdom, I mean, your, the way you articulate what the kingdom should be. Mm-hmm. Instead of pursuing the kingdom the way scripture tells us to pursue the kingdom, we have defined the kingdom. We have defined what church is supposed to be and do in light of our own subcultures. And, and I'm not saying the subcultures need to go away. I'm saying the subcultures need to serve the higher goal. Right. They need to be subservient, subservient. to the higher thing.
1: And examine. Well... Tradition, as you said, is a neutral thing, but it's incredibly powerful, it is. and I'll give you an insight into that from the Gospels. When Jesus said to his audience, you nullify, you stop, cold." the most powerful thing in existence, the Word of God, you know, can split mountains. God speaks, it happens. You nullify the Word of God by what? Your yeah, tradition. Yeah. That's an eye-opener, yeah. and I think it, it fits right into this conversation. I want to say a few extra things about demons. One is Mike has written an excellent article on the origin of demons, and I'll put it in the show notes so people can read it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, The other thing is that our posture toward demons is that we resist them because they can speak to us. Mm -hmm. They can deceive us. And if we're walking in the spirit, if we're walking with the Lord, we do have power to cast out demons from people and to hinder their work. I'll give you an example from my own experience i was in my early 20s and i had a buddy of mine who we were just totally on fire for christ our hearts were hot for the lord and we also believed in the supernatural the power of the holy spirit and so we were known for praying for anybody i mean we would pray for your washing machine if it was broken you know Mm -hmm. we were just (laughs) radical about seeing god move could
2: could you pray that i get one here
1: We're in a hotel. We're not going to mention the name, but... Uh, it doesn't have a washing It doesn't shirt. have a lot of things, let me tell you. <laughs> Mike doesn't even have a dresser or drawer to put his clothes in. They're just sitting out here in yeah. the open don't, wind. Don't describe how many pairs of underwear <laughs> But anyway, so there was brought to us an individual. His name was Derek. He was in his 20s also. And he had schizophrenia, but he had schizophrenia in a way that i would never seen it. He had clairvoyance. In other words, he, he knew things about people that couldn't be known naturally. Mm-hmm. He would scream out of his mind. He was hearing voices, but he would also do some very vile, depraved things mm-hmm. under this influence. He had seen doctors. He had been put on medication. It really didn't alleviate it subdued him, but it didn't alleviate these manifestations. So what my friend and I did, we were, we were between churches at the time, really seeking where the Lord wanted us. We called every single charismatic and Pentecostal church in the city, talking to the secretaries, whoever would answer the phone, saying, listen, we're in our 20s, there's two of us. We met this gentleman. We believe he's demon-possessed. We don't know how to cast out a demon. <laughs> we read about it in the New Testament, yeah. but we're young guys and you're a church, you've got a pastor, you have a, a worship team, you have a pastoral staff. Would you help us to deliver this guy and show us how it's done? And if you do that, we'll join your church. <laughs> well, Mike, every single one of those churches gave us essentially the same answer. Is he a member of our church? Yeah. That was the first question. And after that, we hit a stone wall. We only found one church that would help us. The secretary put me in touch with this gentleman an older guy in his 60s at the time. I was in my 20s, so he was old to me. I talked to him on the phone, and he told me, oh, yeah, I deal with this all the time. I've cast out many demons. Why don't you bring him to the service? I'll pray for him afterwards. So we brought him to the service. Here's Derek. You know, his eyes are all glassy-eyed. He wasn't manifesting at the time, but Mm -hmm. manifesting, showing these signs Mm -hmm. of of Mm -hmm. possession. Anyway, after the service was over, we brought him to the gentleman, and the gentleman laid hands on him, and said, Lord, I cast the demons out of this man. He's now set free. And we looked at Derek, and we looked at one another, and we looked at the guy, and we said, that's it. And Derek obviously was not changed. Nothing happened to Mm -hmm. him. His eyes were still glassy. And the guys just gave us the faith line. Well, you just have to believe, and if you believe, it'll happen. Well, not long after that, he was manifesting again, even worse than before. So we did the stupid thing. We said, Lord, we don't know what we're doing, but we know that you've given us power over demons. Your word says it. So we're going to have a meeting. We're going to bring Derek to the meeting, and we're going to cast these demons out. We want you to teach us how to do it. We had all our friends fast and pray. Mm -hmm. We had the meeting. I remember it vividly. There was about eight of us in the room, and we brought Derek in, and he was quiet. And we said, Derek, we want to pray for you. So we, we had Bibles open, we read Mark 16, these signs shall follow them that believe. Whether you believe that's in the original or not, right. I tend to believe it is, or I do believe it is. And we said, Lord, you show us how to do this. And so we laid hands on Derek, and we began praying for him. And then when we uttered the name of Jesus, he started screaming. And then his voice got guttural, and he was saying, don't say that name. Like that. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. And then, uh, at that time, I couldn't believe it. I was just like, because I'd never seen that, the reaction. You know what I mean? Right, right. And at that moment, one of the other guys who was buddies with us, he had been praying and fasting. He walks in the door, and he sees this going on. It's like a battle. You know, we're praying in the name of Jesus. No! No, stop saying it! And so, Derek looks at us, me and my buddy, who were praying for him. he says, you're afraid of us. And we said, we're not afraid of you. And then... (laughs) Derek turned over and pointed to Paul, who looked mortified. He says, he's afraid of us. And then he started to like say things about what was in Paul's mind at the time, which, which happened to be accurate. So there was this battle, and we didn't know what to do, so we would do what Jesus did. What is your name? <laughs> you know, when he's praying for the guy who had Legion, what is your name? And so now Derek begins to utter these different names. Now, I don't remember all the names. I just remember one. It was Gunge. Gunge was one of the names of the mm-hmm. demons. And we asked him, how did you get in? And he started answering. Like, Gunj was speaking through him. Mm-hmm. And it had to do, he was involved in occultic things mm-hmm. and some very vile, immoral, depraved stuff. So we began taking authority verbally in the name of the Lord Jesus and commanding the demons to come out. This probably went on for an hour or more. And all of a sudden, Derek starts vomiting and one of the guys who was with us, his name was Rodney, he was looking for something to catch the vomit, and he found this brown box, he was, I don't know where it was, he rushed in, and Derek starts spewing, and it was actually green, I mean, it was something not as intense or as bright as Ghostbusters, right, but right. it wasn't like your normal, <laughs> right. and he's just spewing this stuff, and afterwards, he's like in his right mind, and after that episode, he started preaching the gospel, and I think we baptized him, and... It was just unbelievable. And I got to tell you, Mike, that episode caused my face to move. I got my hand kind of low here by, yeah. my, by my stomach from that level all the way up. Now I got my hand to my eyeballs. Mm-hmm. It, you know, the scripture says we yeah. move from faith to faith. It was like, this is real. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And it marked me. But that was a confrontation with the forces of darkness that was harassing, possessing an individual, driving him mad probably would have killed him, and science, medicine couldn't help him, and unfortunately, all the Christian churches, the charismatic and Pentecostals, couldn't help him either, and here we are, you know, young, dumb, single brothers in our 20s, not knowing what we're doing, and the Lord showed his hand in a way that just wrecked me for anything else, and what that led us to start meeting on our own to find out what the church was, Mm -hmm and if you want to find out what we learned on that discovery read a book called Pagan Christianity and Reimagining Church and that was the end result and the outcome of what we discovered in those days
2: wow i don't i don't have a story like that so if you're, if your listeners are waiting to hear mine i don't have any <laughs>
0: I've heard others like it.
2: What I could do, Mike, is I could lay any, hands on you and pray yeah, and see yeah, if anything's yeah. in there. You know, yeah. We could rattle it up a little bit yeah. and see maybe, if
1: anything comes out. Maybe breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'll stop here, Mike, and we will speak more on this subject in another episode. So, folks, stay tuned. Come back next week, and you'll hear the next episode.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents Podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the insurgence has begun. Don't miss it.